Good morning, Boker Tov, and welcome back to te- to our Parsha Perspectives for today, our weekly analysis of the Parsha, the Sedra, that week's Torah portion, with an emphasis on extracting the lessons that are relevant for us in contemporary times. We have many sponsors for today, and want to express our gratitude to them all. First of all, today's Day of Learning at Bogoraton Synagogue is sponsored by Ronan and Dr. Sid Cohen in honor of the birth of their granddaughter, Zahava Kaplan, daughter of Alyssa and Nachum Kaplan, sister to Devorah, Mazel Tov, Mazel Tov, on that wonderful Simcha, you should have a lot of Nachas. The Parsha series is generously sponsored for the year by Becky and Avi Katz and family, loving memory of David Grossman, Le'ilu Nishmas, David Menachem Manish, so grateful to our dear friends, the Katzes, for their generosity in this area and in so many others. Thank you so much. Also, this morning's class is sponsored by Liz and Dr. Michael Michelle in honor of her father, Dr. Irving, Rabbi Irving Levy. And sponsored lastly by Carol Wald in honor of the Yerzeit of her beloved mother, Clara Spresner. Thank you all for your generosity and for your sponsorship. Mazel tov on the simchas and the neshamas of those for whom it is sponsored should have an aliyah. We are up to the final parsha of the book of Bereshis. We are closing the book. The curtain is coming down on the story of the formation, the development of the first family. A complicated story, a roller coaster story, a story of ups and downs. A story that hopefully goes from dysfunction to function, though we'll talk about this morning, whether in fact it did that. Does the story, does the curtain come down with joy and happiness? Is there closure and reconciliation? Or is that wishful thinking? Have they never fully really reconciled? Yosef and his brothers, are they still in some ways at it? Not only when Bracious closes, but even until this very day. That is part of our subject for this morning. Parshat Vayichi can be found in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash on page 268. If you have an Art Scroll Stone Chumash, for those who want to follow inside. Yaakov lived in Mitzrayim for 17 years. Rashi tells us in some ways, these were the best years of his life. He had some peace, he had some closure, he had some degree of happiness. His family was back intact, everyone was safe, secure. They're living and thriving in the suburb of Goshen, where they've set up a yeshiva and a shul. And for 17 years, Yaakov is able to have the shalva, the peace, the serenity that he had wanted before. Vayechi Yaakov, those words, Vayechi, Yaakov lived. Yaakov lived 17 years. But the word Vayechi means even more than Yaakov lived. See Rashi, Vayechi Yaakov, says Rashi, Lama Parsha Zustuma, Lefishakevan Shenefter Yaakov Avinu, Nistimu Eneim, Velibon Shay Yisrael, Mitzaras Hashibot Shishilu Lishabdom. Rashi tells us that normally, if you look in a Sefer Torah, normally if you look in a Chumash, you'll find that there's a space left in between Parshios. That the Parsha ends, and there's a space, there's margin. There's an empty cloth between the words that close the previous parsha and the words that open the next parsha. And yet, Parsha's Vayechi is the one and the one and only parsha in the Torah, which is Stuma, in which it continues on one line, it continues one into the next. There is no space between Parshios, Vayigash, and Vayechi. Why is there no space? Why is there no break? What is the message that that seeks to communicate? So Rashi tells us what it's communicating, it's Stuma because, after Yaakov, once Yaakov died, Nistimu, just like the Parsha Stuma, it's a closed Parsha, once Yaakov dies, Nistimu, the eyes and the hearts of the Jewish people became closed. What does it mean they became closed? The eyes and hearts became closed because of the Tzara, because of the burden, because of the persecution, the oppression, because of the suffering at the hands of the Egyptians. When Yaakov died, this was the close of the Jewish people's serenity, prosperity. This was the close of the Jewish people's peace in Mitzrayim. And now they began to feel the Shibud. Revolver Shulmavobah Zatzal, the great Mashkiach of Yishalayim, asks a very compelling question. Again, so many of us have learned this Rashi so many times, and we gloss right over it. But if you stop and you think about it for even a moment, Revolba's question is very compelling. We know that Shibud Mitzrayim, the Tsaros of Mitzrayim, as Rashi calls them, did not begin when Yaakov died. When Yaakov died, his sons, the Shvatim, continued to outlive him. And we know that from the end of our Parsha, because in the end of our Parsha, the brothers and Yosef continue to have a conversation. Is there reconciliation? Have they moved on? They, they brothers ostensibly are communicating and transmitting a message from their father, that relationship continues. So if that relationship continues, then 
it means that the brothers continued and the Shebet Mitzrayim did not begin yet. So when did the Shebet Mitzrayim, when did the harshness of the exile first begin? When did it first begin? It began after the Shvatim, after all the tribes were gone, after the tribes died, not with the death of Yaakov. So what's Rashi telling us that once it was Sosim? So listen to the insight. Listen to the insight of Revolba. Revolba and Shiri Chomesh on our Parsha, Parsha's Vayechi. He says that the Banj of the Chazal we're referring to is not the physical enslavement. We're not talking about the physical oppression and suffering, but we're talking about a spiritual one. When Yaakov, their guide and their mentor, when Yaakov, that role model, disappeared, the Shvatim, his children, began to feel the influence of the Egyptian culture. As soon as Yaakov was gone, as soon as Yaakov left the scene, when Yaakov was there, he was successful in his barrier. Yaakov was a throwback, a connection to the past. Yaakov was able to give them what they needed in order to have a sense of confidence, a sense of identity, even as they lived among a foreign entity, even as they lived among the, the Egyptians. But once Yaakov died, once Yaakov left the scene, and now the Shvatim, his children, were on their own, they were struggling. And therefore Rashi, therefore the Revolve explains Rashi, they felt the bondage, not the physical bondage. The slavery and oppression, the servitude didn't kick in until all the Shvatim died. But once Yaakov was gone, their eyes and their hearts were closed. The role model, the person they could point to, the person they could see was gone. And now the influence of Mitzrayim, the influence of this foreign culture, this foreign nation, this foreign people could be felt, could be felt. Those living in Chutzlaret are more susceptible to the influence of a non-Jewish culture. But it doesn't matter where you live in the world. If you don't attach yourself to a role model, if you don't have a Yaakov Avinu, if you don't connect to somebody who is a link in the chain to the past and who is a model and a precedent for a life of faith, for a life of devotion, for a life of Mesiris Nefesh, for a life of unwavering commitment to wanting to fulfill the Ratzon Hashem, the will of God, and to give him Nachas Ruach, it is so easy to fall prey. It is so easy to assimilate. It is so easy to become confused and distracted. That's what it means. Was not referring to the physical bondage, but the spiritual one, which is also a form of bondage that we all need to be aware of and we all need to be afraid of. Moving right along, the parasha tells us that Yaakov is ending the, nearing the end of his life. And he has this great fear, don't bury me Mitzrayim. I don't want this to capture my legacy. This is not where I want permanence, but rather take me. Take me to the land of my forefathers. Take me and bury me with those who come before. Do for me both a chesed and emes. Rashi tells us this is the source of the notion. The work of the Chevra Kaddish of Tahara is chesed shel emes. When you take care of and when you um, do a chesed, with those who are no longer among the living, there's no hope that they can repay. There's nothing they can give back in return. There's nothing they can do for us. And therefore, that is the uh, the ultimate chesed. That is the highest level of chesed that we can hope for. That is the highest chesed. It's what we call a chesed ve'emes. I want to sleep in perpetuity. I want to achieve immortality. I want to be forever with avosai, with those who come before me. And he answered, Yosef made the promise. He shavali, Yaakov didn't take it for granted. He didn't trust, so to say. He said, make me a promise. I want to know. I want to know that you fulfill your word. I want to know that you really mean it. Yosef makes him the promise and he, and he bows down. And from here we know the Shekhinah dwells. The Shekhinah can be found. God's presence can be intensely felt. Where? It can be intensely felt at the head of the bed of of a sick person, that is where Hashem is most accessible. It's after these things. It's reported to Yosef, your father is sick, your father is terminally ill. It's time to bring your children, his grandchildren, Menashe and Ephraim, for a bracha, and he does that. Before we get to the sari, he shavali the promise, the oath. Let's look at our first Rav Druk. We're going to see several, several uh, insights of Rav Yisrael Meir Druk, the Eish Tamid, that's what we've been studying this year in the Parsha class, we've been invoking a lot, the son of the great Josh Mordechai, the Magad of Yerushalayim, but this is Rav Yisrael Meir Druk, Rosh Hashiva today in Yerushalayim. In his Eish Tamid, he writes the following, that, Yaakov tells Yosef, promise me, and Yosef promises. And Rashi tells us, Rosh Amita, I alluded to it, Rosh Amita, Russia. What does it mean, the head of the bed? Yaakov's bed was full. Ain't but Russia. Yaakov realizes right now among his children, he had achieved something that his predecessors hadn't. Avram had a Yitzchak, but he also had a Yishmael. And Yitzchak had a Yaakov, 
but he also had a Yosef. And Yaakov had Shivteka. Shre Yosef Melechu, Yosef was a king, and Yosef was living among the Gentiles, and yet he had not compromised an iota of who he was and who he was meant to be. Says Rav Druk Mavur, Yaakov at this moment is overwhelmed. He's on his deathbed. It's the end of his life. He is reflective, he is nostalgic, and he's looking at all he's been through. A roller coaster of ups and downs, of conflict, of tension, of impermanence. And here he is now surrounded by his loved ones, surrounded by his family, thinking about the end of his life and his legacy. And the one loose end, his Yosef, who had been missing for 22 years, the one loose end, his Yosef, who he was concerned and suspected had not only disappeared physically, but who he was worried had strayed and disappeared spiritually. Now Yosef, who's risen to the level of Viceroy of Egypt, Yosef is still with the program. Yosef is still with the plan. Yosef has raised the Menashe and an Ephraim. And therefore he feels full. He feels complete. He feels whole. And Rosh Hamita. Davar Tema wonders Rav Druk, how peculiar. Rashi is telling us in this Pasuk, and at this moment, it's at this time, that Yaakov feels, I'm whole, I'm complete. I finally feel a sense of comfort. Why now? Why did it take Yosef promising you he wouldn't bury you in Egypt? How about when you first descended to Egypt? Okay, when you saw the hint and the signal of the agolos of the wagons, that wasn't enough to convince you. Okay, maybe that I understand. We spoke about previously last week and years before what the message was. Maybe then, you had to come and see for yourself. Seeing is believing, you had to see with your own eyes. But once you got down to Mitzrayim, Yaakov, and once you're living and seeing Yosef, you're learning with his children, so exhale. Now you can breathe a sigh of relief. Now you know you're whole, you're complete. Why does it only take until Yosef makes the promise? What is it about the promise that finally assures Yaakov, that gives Yaakov finally that sense of comfort that he can exhale? In the continuation of the parsha, when Yaakov is giving a bracha to Yosef, it says, and Rash and Unkelis there translates, Mavur, Shayod Yaakov, Shayosef Kaim is called Torova Mitzvah Beseser. Vin came Adua Rak Ata Shtachav Odamitaswa Shlema. The Targum tells us that Yaakov knew that while Yosef, you know, Yosef maybe didn't wear a yarmulke to work. I'm sure he did. I'm not gossiping about Yosef. But we know that until recently, there were many, my father and father law among them, the previous generation, righteous, religious, devoted, holy Erlachayidin, holy Jews, who the circumstances didn't allow to wear a yarmulke to work. And yet, they were unflinching in washing before they eat, making a bracha, and making a bracha when they came out of the bathroom. They figured out a way. And says the Targum, so Yaakov knew about Yosef, that while Yosef operated at the highest echelons of government, while Yosef lived in the palace and served as the viceroy, he was unflinching, uncompromising, unequivocal in his personal observance. So again, so why not until now? Why is Yaakov only satisfied? Why is Yaakov only feel whole or complete now? What took so long? Why not earlier? The Nira Bir Bezes, a Cesar of Druk, here's his suggestion. Yaakov knew earlier on that Yosef was being observant privately. But if Yosef was doing it privately, if Yosef was able to mumble a bracha, in the corner, he held up the phone to make it look like he was on the phone when he was davening Mincha. How did Yaakov really witness? How did he know? How did he know the passion, the energy, the enthusiasm? How did he really know? When you ask someone to take an oath, an oath is invoking God's name. And when a person who's God-fearing invokes God's name, they do so with an enormous sense of seriousness and sobriety. It brings out a sense of Yira Shemayim. One of the tests of a person's seriousness is how seriously they take using Hashem's name. When God said, in fact, in the Ten Commandments, when Hashem said, don't take my name in vain, the Chazal tell us, that the whole world shook. The whole world was shaking at the 
thought of taking God's name in vain. God's name is our connection to Him. Kiddush Hashem, Chilo Hashem, Nekadeshash Shimcha Barabim. When we talk about God's name, we're talking about God's essence. We're talking about how God manifests and expresses Himself to us. We're talking about the way we access Him and our relationship with Him. And therefore, to take His name in vain is to take him in vain. So when Hashem said, don't ever invoke my name in vain. Don't say my name when you don't mean it. Don't make a promise, a pledge, a swear, an oath with my name when it's untrue. You're desecrating, you're violating, you're corrupting everything I stand for. So it was specifically with this. This was the litmus test. Yaakov knew. If you'd ask Yaakov, of course he knew. My Yosef is observant. My Yosef is Ehrlich. My Yosef gets it. How do you know? I know. Have you seen it? Not for myself, but I know. Now with the Shavua, when he sees the way in which he takes the seriousness of Moki making this promise and this oath, Kashara Yaakov Ketzer Nishba Yosef, Haven She Yosef Hare Omed Bitzitko. Yosef is righteous, and Yosef is virtuous, and Yosef is serious. Odiyesh Lavar, but furthermore, you can explain. Shari Bikesh Menu Yaakov Lasim Yad Dotachas Yerecho, Velo Nenelo. When Yaakov said, I need you to take an oath, and here's what you need to do. When a person makes a promise, and here the non-Jewish courts have, or non-Jewish systems, have followed us. They put their hand on the Bible and make a promise. Where did that come from? You put your hand on a Bible. Because if we want you to take it seriously at the moment you're making the promise, you put your hand, you rest your hand on a mitzvah. There was no Bible. There was no mitzvah other than the bris milah. And therefore, in reference or association with the bris milah was the way a person would most seriously take their promise. But Yosef hesitated. And why did Yosef hesitate? Aside from the obvious reasons why it seems inappropriate. But Yosef hesitated because Smag writes in, in Losase Mitzvah Kuf Chav Zayin, that also if a person should not go into the bathhouse with their father. You don't go to the locker room with your father. You don't change in the changing room with your father. Because it's not proper. It's not respectful. Yosef. Yosef didn't want to. He thought that was a violation of Kibbut Av. Yosef thought that it wasn't appropriate. So he didn't respond immediately. He hesitated at using that symbol of a mitzvah of righteousness in order to make the promise. So therefore, it was the duel. What Yaakov witnessed was both the seriousness with which Yosef took the promise, the Shvua, and moreover, coupled with Yosef's knowledge and awareness of respect, the mitzvah of Kibbut Av, that he didn't want to violate that boundary. And when you combine the two, Yaakov says, now, now, I feel shalem. Mitaso shlema she'imba rasha. Now I know that my Yosef is not only a tzaddik in private, my Yosef is not only a tzaddik when no one's looking, but now I've witnessed, now I can affirm his tzidkus, his, his righteousness. Okay, continuing right along. Now we can move. Perak Memches. After this, they bring the brothers. Yaakov's told your son Yosef is coming. Now we transition. Vayaged li Yaakov, Yaakov was told, and who sits upright in bed, who strengthens himself, Vayizchazek, who strengthens himself, Yisrael. Note, throughout our Parsha, and really throughout Sefer Breshas and Chumash, when do we refer to him as Yaakov, and when do we refer to him as Yisrael? Pay attention, pay close attention, because Yaakov represents the vulnerable. Yaakov represents the transient. Yaakov represents the mere mortal. Yisrael represents the greater entity. Yisrael represents the covenantal community. Yisrael represents immortality and eternity. So Yaakov is told, Yaakov on his deathbed is told, but what does it mean by Yitzchazek? What he summons within himself is his sense of Yisrael, his sense of eternity and immortality, his sense of the future of the Jewish people, his sense of transcendence, his sense of being bigger than the individual, but rather being something so much more, the Jewish people. And Yaakov tells Yosef, God appeared to me and he gave me a bracha and he told me I would multiply and I'd inherit the land and now your two sons who are noladim bacha be'eres Mitzrayim, your two sons who were born here in Egypt, they're mine. Ephraim and Menashe, your two sons, they're like Reuben and Shimon. And we know halachically this matters. Halachic implications. That Ephraim and Menashe, though they are grandchildren, they're a level down from the Shvatim, nevertheless, Yaakov promotes them. 
And Yaakov says they have the status of Reuven and Shimon. Yosef, you're not counted among the tribes, but rather Ephraim and Menashe are. So Machlokas Rishonim, did they each receive different territory, or did they receive the same territory of Yosef? Are they really treated as two tribes, or are they symbolically referenced or counted as two tribes? Exactly how far that goes is not for now, but Yaakov elevates Ephraim and Reuven Kerubain and Shimon. And he's going to give them the bracha we'll come to in a moment, but first we have to ask a question. Vani, as for me, says Yaakov, Bevoi mi Padan, when I was coming from Padan, Mesa alai Rachel be'eretz kenan baderech, be'od kivras eretz lavo efrasa. Oh, when it came to me, Rachel died on me. Mesa alai Rachel. I point out every year, I always find this Pusik startling. This Pusik sounds to me, Lahavdil, comes across, it sounds almost like, like, um, like she's a used car. Mesa alai Rachel. Your mother up and died on me. Could you believe it? 100,000 miles. Mesa alai. She died on me. That car. She died on me. The camel. Can you believe my laptop? Myself. She died on me. Mesa alai. She died on me. Beretz Kanan on the way. Like as if Rachel inconvenienced Yaakov by dying on him. He was on the journey. He was on the way. He had a large family. What was she doing inconveniencing him? Why did she have to go and die on him? Mesa alai Rachel on the way. And I buried her there. And I buried her there on the side of the road to Ephrat. Ephras, which is Beis Lachem. Then Yisrael sees the children of Yosef and he says, Who are they? So all the Rishonim jump on this. And all the Rishonim wonder, what in the world is going on here in these Pesukim? Yaakov is moved to give a bracha. Yosef summons his grandchildren. And Yaakov sees them and he says, these are no ordinary grandchildren. These don't have a level of grandchildren. No. They're elevated. They're like children. They count as tribes. But by the way, before I ask who they are, even though I just spoke about them, let me reference a little history. Your mother up and died on me when we were on the way. And I had to bury her on the side of the road. I had no choice. Oh, okay, back to these boys. Who are they and what's going on? What in the world is happening here? What's going on in this, in this interaction? What's going on in this back and forth, in this conversation? Why here? Why now? And what is Yaakov trying to communicate with this story about Rachel dying? And why here? And why here? So it would seem, let's look at Rashi. Let's look at Rashi before I tell you what would seem. Rashi tells us, Rashi tells us, Vayikbara, and I buried her. Yeah. Rashi says, you know why Yaakov's invoking this here? What's the promise that Yaakov just asked from Yosef? Do me a favor. I know it won't be convenient. I know it won't be comfortable. I know it will be hard. The Mephoshim will explain. It was particularly hard for Yosef. Why? Yosef's the viceroy. He's living in Egypt. You're not going to bury your father in Egypt? Where's your patriotism? Where's your loyalty? Don't you believe this is your future? Why are you going to another country? Yeah, Yosef had to worry that he would be accused. Unfortunately, this is a realized fear in our time that he had to worry that he was going to be accused of what? Dual loyalty. Dual loyalty. You're taking your father to Canaan. You're taking your father to Israel. Where's your loyalty? Not bury him here. So Yaakov says, I know I'm inconveniencing you. I know I'm asking you to do something difficult. And you're probably wondering, and you probably want to ask me, hey, dad, Abba, you want me to leave my comfort zone? You want me to potentially get in trouble with Paro? All to take you far away, a long journey, an arduous trip to bury you elsewhere. But my mother, you deposited on the side of the road? My mother who died in childbirth, you just buried conveniently where you were? Why didn't you inconvenience yourself? Why didn't you make that effort? Why didn't you struggle? Why didn't you go to extraordinary lengths to take her to Marasamach Pela with you? Why did you simply deposit her and bury her on the side of the road? So Rashi says that's what Yaakov is anticipating Yosef might ask, and that's why he's inserting it punct right here and in this spot. Even though I am, I am burdening you with taking me to bury me elsewhere, and I didn't do that for your mother. You need to know. I didn't even take her into the city. I didn't even bury her in the town cemetery of Beis Lachem. I buried her on the side of the road. Why? 
ידעתי שיש בליבך עליי. I know that you have a grievance against me. I know that you don't understand and you're wondering why and how. אבל דלחה, says Rashi, you need to know, that I buried her because divinely I was told. It was prophecy. God wanted her there. Why? Why would God want her there? Because when it was done, the Babylonian evil, wicked general would exile them. And they would pass And the way out of Israel to Babylonia, to exile, was exactly past this road. Mama Rachel will rise up and she will see the Jewish people being led into exile, and she will advocate like only a mother can. She will cry like only a mother can. And she will plead and beg for mercy for children like only a mother can. The Pasuk in Yirmiya, Perak Lamed Aleph. V'Kadosh Baruch Hu Meshiva, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu is going to answer, Yeshchar le'upulaseichnu Mashem, v'shavu vanam le'gvulam. That hope and that optimism, that promise of our return to the land comes on the back of the sincere prayer of Rachel Imenu, of our Mama Rachel. So says Yaakov Avinu, according to Rashi, why is he mentioning it here? Where does this come from? She died on me on the way like a, like a car that died. And I deposited her, I buried her there instead of making the effort to take her with me. And I know Yaakov. I know, Yosef, rather, you're wondering. I've just asked to inconvenience you. I've asked you to go to extraordinary lengths. And when it came to me, I just deposited her there. How and why? How could I do that? I know that's what you're wondering. Here's the reason. I didn't do it randomly. I didn't do it by chance. It was by design. The Almighty Hashem divinely inspired and told me to put her there. And why did she need to be there, says Rashi? Fast forward to Yirmiyo Anavi. Because when the Jews would be exiled, and it was Radon, the Babylonian general, would take them out of their land, she would rise up and daven. She would advocate as only a mama Rachel, as only a mother, as only a mother could. And with that, he turns to Yosef and tries to explain. The Ramban wonders where Rashi sees this in the text. If you look at the Ramban, there's a lot I want to cover, so we're not going to look at this Ramban inside. But the Ramban wonders, where is this in the text? And he says, maybe that's what Yaakov meant when he said, she died on the way. Why did the text have to tell us she died on the derach, on the way? Just tell us she died and tell us where she was buried. Why does it describe where she died? So suggests the Ramban, maybe that's what Rashi saw, was in the words on the road that there would be something about being buried adjacent to the road which is significant, which would be Yaakov's defense, which would be the explanation. And that's why, that's why it says the road and the road indicates she needed to be buried there. But the Ramban gives his own interpretation. He doesn't like Rashi. And the Ramban gives his own interpretation to what in the world is going on here. And he says, Yaakov wants to explain to Yosef, don't be angry that his mother was not buried in Marasamach Pela. Why? Because she died in the land of Canaan and was not buried outside of Israel, while Yaakov's burial was going to be in the land of Egypt. She died suddenly on the road. He couldn't bury her there. How could he leave his children and cattle on the road and go with her to Machpelah? It would have taken him and his entourage many days. He would have abandoned his family. Who would have taken care of them? So says the Ramban, maybe what Yaakov is trying to suggest to Yosef is a contrast. She died in Israel and she's buried in Israel. I am scheduled to be die, to die in Egypt. So you can't compare. It's true I'm asking you to do something extraordinary. But the alternative to it is a final resting place in Egypt and I don't want to be there. Your mother died at least in Israel, and that's where she was buried, albeit not in Marasamach Pela, but at least she is buried in the eternal resting place of, of the Jewish people, of the Jewish people. It wasn't possible. The Ramban understands that Yaakov is offering a defense. Yosef, don't be frustrated, don't be upset. This is unspoken. I know it's many years that we never addressed this, but I want you to know why. I want you to know why, and the reason is I couldn't. I wasn't practical. I had young children. I had a family. I had people who relied on me. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. The Svarno offers another interpretation. Svarno has another pshat. We're again on Perak Memches and Pasuk Zion. The Svarno, Rabbi Svarno, the great Italian exegete, says the following. He says, Where's the Svarno? Mesa. 
Mesa Alai Rachel Asforno. Sorry, just finding the place. Yeah. Vani Shema Tomak Shaniel Elai Hal Yisaleh. Maybe you'll say that he's going to have two more children. It was impossible. When I was exiled, when God sent me on the path, when we were on the way, Chazal, Rabbis, tell us in Sanhedrin, you know who feels the loss of a loved one most? Is it the children? Is it the nephews and nieces? Is it the rabbi, the friends? Who feels it the most? Says the Gemara, Ein isha mesa ela When a spouse dies, nobody feels it as profoundly. Nobody feels it as acutely, painfully as the spouse. The spouse lost their other half. The spouse lost a piece of themselves. The spouse lost the partner. The spouse in, in, um, experiences a extraordinary loneliness. Ein isha mesa ela Says Svorno, you know why she's buried on the side of the road? You don't understand. It's true, you kids, you lost your mother. You, Yosef and Benjamin, you lost your mother. It's true. Binyamin didn't even know her. Binyamin, Rachel, died in childbirth. She never really met her son, Binyamin. And Yosef, you weren't there. But you know, it's true, the pain of children. But nobody felt the pain like I did. And I was so, I, my grief, my grief ran so deep and so painful. I just didn't have what it took. I simply couldn't get it together and muster the strength to bring her to the Beis Lachem Cemetery. I didn't have the koach laholicha lebeis kvaros beis lachem. Vein and there's no question that from then there was a hole in my heart. My Yitzhahara was destroyed. My desires were weakened. I had no more strength to have any more children. That was it. So the Svarno explains why is Yaakov invoking this here? He's sharing with Yosef a deep secret. Yosef, I never told you, I never told anyone. But when your mother died, I was crippled with sadness. When the mother died, I was paralyzed by the sense of loss. When your mother died, I put one foot in front of the other and I did what it took because I had children and a family, but you, don't, you need to know that inside, I had nearly nothing left. So maybe you're upset and resentful, but I want you to know the reason I didn't take her to bury her there is I simply didn't have anything left to do it. I find these mafarshim so powerful because this is a conversation that Yaakov and Yosef needed to have it's a deathbed conversation, but it doesn't need to be. They're all conversations that children and parents, all conversation that relationships in all directions need to have and they don't need to wait for the deathbed. There are unasked questions that should be asked. There are answers and explanations that should be offered. There are clarifications that deserve to happen. And not always will everyone be satisfied with what's offered, but in order to have a sense of completion, in order to have closure, there are conversations. And I can tell you as a rabbi that is regularly counseling at the, at the deathbed, people wait until it's too late. They wait till their loved one is compromised or is terminal or they're unable to bring up these topics because they're concerned. But you know, when they lose the loved one, now it's un, it's, there's no closure. Now it remains forever unexplained. And here is a beautiful example as the Torah teaches us something from so many years ago but relevant today the importance of these conversations at the end of life. And Yaakov is essentially turning on its head and he's saying, Yosef, you're bitter, you're resentful, you need to know what I was going through. Sometimes you have children who are resentful of the way a parent behaves when their other parent was dying, but they don't know the profound pain that that surviving parent was enduring because it was never communicated. It remained unspoken when it should have been. So Rashi says, I want you to know, this wasn't me. God told me to bury your mother there. And it was a plan. She needed to be there because when the Jewish people would be exiled, Mama Rachel needed to be there to daven for them. And the Svarna says, and the Ramban says, no, 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 that's not what's going on. What's going on is Yaakov says, I was being a responsible parent. You don't know, but you don't realize. If I would have made the effort to go to Masamach Pela and would have left everyone alone, you never would have made it. 
I had to stay back. That was the responsible thing. And the Svarno offers a third interpretation. He says, Yaakov is telling Yosef, I didn't have what it took. I was broken inside. I was hollow and empty inside. You have no idea the depth of my grief. I simply didn't have what it took. Look at it through my eyes. Look at it and live it through my perspective. The Chizkuni offers two more interpretations. Listen to the Chizkuni. Says the Chizkuni, Number one, the Chizkuni says, I wasn't yet secure in the cave. For when I was on the road, Esav was still claiming it. You want and wish for me to have buried your mother where ultimately Leah and I are buried? I couldn't. Esav controlled the cave at the time. Esav was wrestling me over that cave. He claimed it was his. I simply couldn't. So I buried her on the road. But, Kishkavartius Leah, by the time I buried Leah, the cave was clearly mine. Esav had relinquished any hope of ownership, any claim over it, and therefore I was able to bury Leah. So you can't have a taina, you can't have a grievance against me. I couldn't bury your mother there. I had no choice but to put her on the side of the road. It wasn't an option for me, number one. Number two, Ekbar I knew this border would eventually belong to her descendants, and it'd be an honor for her to be buried in the portion that belonged to her children. But had I buried her in the cave, where is Marasamach Pela? Within the division of the land of Israel, among the tribes, where does Hebron, where does Marasamach Pela fall out? It falls out in the portion of Yehuda. Yehuda is the son of whom? Of Leah, Rachel's co-wife. So for Rachel to be interred in the portion of her co-wife of Yehuda, the, the son of Leah, that wouldn't have been respectful. What was more respectful, Yaakov is telling Yosef is, I buried her here near Beis Lachem, and that is in the portion of her children. And that is the greater respect. That is the greater respect. And then a final, a third interpretation of the Chizkuni. He says, Yaakov buried her there. He says, Yisrael. I could have been a, it would have been a disgrace to transport her to the Machpelah. Why? Because her blood might have soiled. She would have been in her burial garments. And there was no ice packs. Today, when we transport a person to be buried in New York, to be buried in Eretz Yisrael, we have special packaging and transportation and ice pack and cooler. It didn't exist then. He says, if I would have taken her to Mars Machpelah, her body would have begun to decay and that would not have been respectful at all. So we've seen many, many interpretations. Rashi, a couple in the Ramban, the Svarno, three in the Chizkuni, all different and all kinds of interpretations. Rashi, it was prophetic. She needed to be there for when the children would emerge and when the children would ultimately come out. And that is the vision of our Mama Rachel, the vision of our Mama Rachel, that she stands by the side and she davens for us in a way like nobody else, like nobody else could. That is the image and the vision of our Mama Rachel, who sits on the side of the road. The Babacher Rebbe Zatzal explains beautifully that Hashem wanted Rachel Yimenu to be buried roadside because Rachel Yimenu continues to sacrifice for her children. Rachel Yimenu, Parshas Vayete Rashi tells us, was the Akeres Abayas. She was the one willing to sacrifice. She was Moshe, Moshe Nefesh. She was the one who gave the taste and the flavor and the atmosphere to the home. And, he's, and, and the Lubavitcher Rebbe says, uh, based on this, that women are exempt. Women should never be conflicted. There should never be a tension, a competition. Where are they going to give their, their love and attention? To Hashem or to their children? So Hashem says, no, no, no. Don't worry about me. If there's a time-bound mitzvah and you can't get it all in, then forfeit me. Don't have a mincha. Don't sit in this. Don't do this. Don't do the mitzvah for me. Stay with your husband. Stay with your children. The Nashim Tzidkanios, this is the image of Rachel Imenu, who is forever in perpetuity, Mama Rachel. She is Rachel Imenu. This woman who was barren for so many years, who wanted more than anything. She had the husband. She scored Yaakov. Well, Leah, all she wanted to do was be Yaakov's wife. Rachel had Yaakov. And yet, all she wanted was to be a mother. And that is how she is remembered. That's how she is memorialized in perpetuity. She's Mama Rachel. She is Rachel Imenu. And so Yaakov's telling Yosef, yeah, bury me and Mara Machpelah, 
but your mother needed to be buried along the road because your mother is a mama. She's most a nefesh. And she is willing to be sacrificed. She was willing to not be in Kevar, she was willing to not be in, Ma- in Maras Machpela in order to remain closer to you. That is the extension of Rashi. The Ramban says it wasn't possible. Svarno says, I was paralyzed by grief. I couldn't do it. Cheskuni says, Esav had the Mara. I couldn't get her there. Or number two, it's a greater honor to be buried in her portion, not another. Or lastly, Kavad Ames. Maybe the Tachrichin would have been soiled. I didn't have that chance. I didn't have that chance. The Ramban has a final interpretation. And listen to the final interpretation. A seventh interpretation. Says the Ramban, you know why Yaakov is telling Yosef I didn't bury her there? Listen to this, it's wild. Because Yaakov says, you know, the fact that I married, married two sisters is against the Torah. In the Torah, a person is not allowed to be married to two sisters. So how did I do it? How could I be married to two sisters? It was a horasha. It was an exception. For whatever reason, the genetics, the spiritual DNA of a Rachel and of a Leah needed to combine with Yaakov to yield the Shiftekah, the 12 tribes. For whatever reason, it was a temporary exception to the rule. But Yaakov says, you know what it would look like? If the Jews for thousands of years would come to Maras Machpelah and I would be buried there with two sisters, what that would look like and what it would say about me, that I was in continued violation of Torah to be associated with and buried with two sisters, it couldn't be. I couldn't have it. And so instead, I lie next to Leah, but Mama Rachel, Rachel Menu sits on the roadside. She cries and she, and she rises for her children, for whom she is the most loyal advocate, a loving mother who can step up and stand up in ways that nobody else can. So we saw seven interpretations. And whichever one speaks to you, they could have multiple truths. Maybe many of them are compelling to you. But what I want to draw your attention to is not which of the interpretations you find most compelling as much as the importance of having these conversations. Don't wait. Don't delay. Don't leave things unresolved. But have the conversations that need to happen, even if it simply is offering a clarification so that it doesn't remain unresolved for survivors, for successors, for those who will remain behind. Moving right along. Now it gives the bracha to Ephraim and to Menashe. We all know the story that Menashe is on Yaakov's right because he's older and the right side is the, is the greater side. And Ephraim was younger than the left side. But Yaakov pulls the old switcheroo and he crosses his hands and he puts his right hand on the younger one. Ephraim is left hand on Menashe, the older one. And he gives a bracha to Yosef and he says, God who walked before me, before my forefathers, Avram and Yitzchak, which translates as, God, what's Haro'e'o'c? Art scroll translates it as, God who shepherds me. God who shepherds me. So it's all set up. Menashe and Ephraim, Yaakov switches his hands. Instead of going right to Ephraim and Menashe, first he gives a bracha to Yosef. And the bracha to Yosef is introduced with, God, who I love and loves me, God of my fathers, Avram and Yitzchak, God, Haro'e'osi. What does the word Haro'e'osi mean? So Art Scroll translates Haro'e as, what's a Ro'e? A shepherd. Ha'elokim Haro'e means God who shepherded me. He shepherds me through my life. He is the shepherd of my life. But the Rabbi Salavechik Chumash translates it differently, based on the Ramban. The Ramban says the word Ro'e means a shepherd. But the root of the word shepherd of Roa is Rea. Rea is a friend. And therefore the OU, Rabbi Salavetra Chomet translates, Ha'elokim Ha'ro'e'osi is not God who shepherded me, but God who befriended me. Kaddish Baruch who is my closest friend. I'm never alone. I confide, I lean, I love, I feel his love. Ha'elokim Ha'ro'e'osi. It's one of the most beautiful psukim in the Torah, if you understand like the Ramban. Ha'elokim Ha'ro'e'osi means means, Yosef, I give you a bracha, that do you know that God has been my best friend? Me'odi, from when I was born, on Hayom until today. Throughout my life, when Dina was captured and raped, when Esav wanted to kill me, when this happened and I was on the road and on the run, when Lavan pulled the old switcheroo, throughout my life, and all that I had to endure, Hayalokim Haro'e'osi, 
God was my best friend, Meudi, from my inception at Hayomazah until today. Yosef, that's what I want you to know. And that is the biggest bracha. The biggest bracha is to know that the Ribbonishlam, the Ebishter, is your best friend. Talk to him, lean on him, and, and, and live with him. Haro Eosi. I love that shot. I love that explanation. It is so powerful. But back to Rav Druk. Rav Druk number two wonders the following. Rav Druk number two wonders the following. Tzorach Biur. Why is Yaakov crossing his hands? What's with the old switcheroo? Why doesn't he just say, switch places? Yaakov's not shy. Why can't Yaakov just tell them, fellas, boys, switch places? Why doesn't he tell them, Menasha, on the left, Ephraim, on the right? Why does he pull the old switcheroo, crosses his hands? What's going on? Harash Pepeirushua Torah. The Torah is giving us the answer in the same pasuk that raises the question. The question was, why does the Torah say he switched his hands? And the answer is, Ki because he wanted to preserve the dignity and the honor of Menashe. So yes, he wanted to, to channel through the right, through the greater hand to Ephraim, the younger one, but he wanted to preserve the dignity of Menashe to leave him on the right. The word sikel, which means to switch, also has the same root as the word sechel. That Yaakov wasn't doing this randomly or haphazardly. Yaakov was doing this thoughtfully and by design, strategically. He should have told the boys, switch places. But, Instead, he crossed his hands. Why? He did not want to embarrass Menashe. Because Menashe was the Bechor, and he didn't want him to be embarrassed. So instead of asking him to switch places, he took it upon himself to switch his hands in order not to embarrass Menashe. The great Rebbe writes, person always has to show honor to the person who deserves it. Give him a seat on the Mizrach. Give him a seat at the table. Point, and therefore Menashe was older, and by virtue of being the Bechor, he deserved to be on the right. Yes, Yaakov had to redirect, rechannel across his hands, but he didn't take the easier route, which was to switch them. He took the harder route, which was to hold his hands in that position. Hard for an old man on his deathbed, deathbed. But he went the harder route because he took it upon himself. Better for him to work harder, but not embarrass Menasha than it would be to embarrass Menasha. What an important lesson. But says Rav Druk, you could also explain it a little bit differently. Why didn't he switch him? Because it says in the Pasuk before, Why didn't it just say, Why doesn't it say Ephraim was on the left of Yisrael and Menashe was on the right of Yisrael? Why does it say, On his right, which was the left of Yisrael. In other words, the Torah here is narrating from the perspective of Yosef. He says, Ephraim, who was on Yosef's right, who was on Yaakov's left. Just say, he was on Yaakov's left. What's really relevant here is how they were positioned vis-a-vis Yaakov. Yaakov's the one giving the bracha. Yaakov's the one who has to hold his hands and cross them. So what do we care how they appeared from the perspective of Yosef? Why does the Torah communicate it in such a backwards, peculiar way? Because the Torah wants us to know that even though Menashe, even though Ephraim was on the left of Yaakov, from Yaakov's perspective... Ephraim was on Yosef's right because Yosef was standing opposite Yaakov. So from Yaakov's perspective, Ephraim was on the right because that also has a chashivus. Yosef That's what Avdruk suggests is each one of them is on a left and each one of them is on a right. It all depends what perspective you're looking from Yosef 
or from Yaakov. We're not going to get into it right now. We've discussed it in previous years. What is this machlokas? What is this debate between Yaakov and Yosef about which one takes precedence? Who deserves the greater bracha, Menashe or Ephraim? Menashe is older. So why Ephraim? Why did Yaakov see Ephraim as the answer to the Jewish future, while Yosef thought Menashe was the key to the Jewish future? We've quoted the Salam Rebbe in the past. Yesterday I learned a beautiful sicha of the Rebbe, with Rabbi Tauger, who actually published the translation of the sichas of the Rebbe, which is good because it's in Yiddish, so I needed that translation. He has a beautiful perspective, a lot of beautiful perspectives, but I think it's important to include this perspective of, of uh, Rav Druk, that Yaakov and Yosef each see Menashe and Ephraim as being on their own left or right, depending on what view and what way they're looking at them. Rav Druk then moves on to the next piece, and he asks a great question. He says, I don't understand what's going on here. Yaakov puts his hands on Menashe and Ephraim, and he gives Yosef a bracha, Hamalacha Goel. And only after that does it say, Vayavarchim Bayomahule more, only after that does he give the bracha to Menashe and Ephraim. So why are we saying he's giving a bracha to Menashe and Ephraim by giving a bracha to Yosef? What in the world's going on? Madua Kashum Bavarchas Yosef, Yosef. Why are his hands on the heads of Menashe and Ephraim while he's giving the bracha to Yosef? If you want to give a bracha to Yosef, put your hands on the head of Yosef. Yesod Gadol Lamadnu Mikan. Says Rav Druk, we learn a really important principle from here. Shabracha Amitis La'avi Derech Habonim. The greatest blessing to a father is through their children. Kashem Mavarach Yaakov is Yosef, Umeniach is Yadav Alabonim. When Yaakov gives Yosef a bracha, he doesn't put his hand on Yaakov's, on Yosef's head. He puts his hands on Menashe and Ephraim. Kasher Yeshefa Ubracha Labonim, Zoe Birchas Sa'av. When children are successful, when children are thriving, when children are prosperous, when children are on the path, that is the greatest bracha to the parent. So the Zayda, the grandparent, puts his hands on the Enoch while he blesses his own son because he says, Son, Yosef, you know what the bracha is? Ephraim and Menashe. To have children who are a continuity, to have children who are on fire, to have children who walk in your footsteps. That is the greatest bracha. That is the greatest bracha. I think it's the Svasemis who says, That's the coast of Archuz B'nai Yisrael, is Vani Vanar Nelcha Adko. What is the coast of Archuz B'nai Yisrael? Pashas Naso. The bracha birchas kohanim that we give our children, the bracha birchas kohanim, the kohanim give us. What is that bracha yivarech Hashem v'yishmerecha? The kos of orchos b'nei Yisrael, the Medrash says, the ko, chafei, the cho of kos of orchos b'nei Yisrael is connected to that vani vanar nelcha ad ko. The akeda, when Avram says, Yitzchak and I are going ad ko, what is the kos of orchu? The greatest bracha is vani vanar nelcha ad ko. When children walk in the footsteps of their parent, when they embrace the derech of their parent, when they give Yiddish a nachas, chasidish a nachas, litvish a nachas, every type of nachas to the parent, that is the greatest bracha for the parent. So says Rav Druk, that's how you understand what seems out of sequence in these psukim. Who's he giving the bracha to? Is it to Yosef or is it to Yosef's sons? Why are his hands on the heads of the sons if you're giving the bracha to Yosef? Why does it seem interrupted? What's going on? Says Rav Druk, it's all mixed together because the greatest bracha to a parent is to have successful children who walk in their same who walk in their same path. Why do we choose? Why do we choose Ephraim and Menashe as the recipients of our of our bracha? Give him a bracha on that day, saying Says the Sasavar, You know what the bracha is. Bayomahu, always live in the moment, live in that day. more, the Jewish people will bless through you. So, what in the world's going on here? First of all, why are Menashe and Ephraim chosen? This is an age-old question. We've discussed this many times, but I want to add on something new this year. Why are Menashe and Ephraim chosen? Not a, we give our kids a bracha. I love, and I'm running out of time, otherwise I would elaborate and describe to you a Masora I have from my father, that my father, for a long time already, gives us all brachas, we're grown children, wherever we are in the world, in absentia. He gives us a bracha. Friday night, closes his eyes, he extends his hands, and wherever we are, he gives us a bracha. And we've, too, I give a bracha to my children every Friday night. Baruch Hashem, I have several who have grown and are graduated. And I give them a bracha every Friday night. And it's the greatest bracha to also close your eyes and think about your, your eneklach, your grandchildren, and give them a bracha, give them a bracha as well. So if you would have asked me to choose from Tanakh, 
If you would have asked me to choose from Chazal, who should we bless in the be like? Maybe Hillel. Hillel, such a righteous person. Maybe Rabbi Akiva gave his life. Maybe Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov. Maybe Moshe and Aaron, Yosef David. All this, Ephraim and Menashe. Two rather uh, minor characters of the Torah. That's who we bless like. So we've given many answers before. Number one, we said, these are the first two who are born in Chutz Laaretz. They're born outside of Israel. They're born away from a Jewish education. They're born away from their Zayd to their grandfather Yaakov. And yet, they are steadfast. They never compromise. They remain true. And that's a bracha to our children. Be like Ephraim and Menashe. You're growing up in Gauls. You're growing up in exile. You're growing up in a world, an environment which is foreign, which is difficult. Persevere. Be like Ephraim and Menashe, number one. Number two suggestion is that Ephraim and Menashe are the first generation to get along. First ones. Yaakov, Yitzchak and Yishmael didn't get along. Yaakov and Esav doesn't get along. Yosef and his brothers don't get along. Ephraim and Menashe, you're the first ones. Not only do they get along, Ephraim, the younger brother, is considered greater than his older brother. Is Menashe jealous? Is he competitive? No. Menashe is proud. That's the bracha we give our children. That's the bracha we give our children. Be proud and realize who you're meant to be. But I want to tack on a third interpretation. This comes from a Druk. This is new this year. And I love this and I'm going to think about this. Why do we give a bracha to be like Menashe and Ephraim more than any of these other personalities? Sort of Druk quotes his father, the Drash Mordechai, Rav Mordechai Druk, Zatzal, Only Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov are called our patriarchs. The 12 tribes are not. Like the Gemara says, Enkor and Avos al-Shlosha. And why is that? Because we have, we have the doctrine of the decline. We have this notion that every generation is further removed from God, from Sinai. Every generation, there's further decline. So the Avos, they are the Avos. They are the archetypes. The Avos, only Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov are called the Avos. And while the Shvatim are great, they're a step down because there's decline. There's a Yerida Sadoros. Chazat tells the Gemara Shabbos Kofiud Beis, Im Rishonin Kamalacham Anu Adam. If the earlier generations were like angels, we are mere mortals. There is a doctrine of decline, Yerida Sadoros. We're on our way down. Who broke that mold? Who broke that mold and didn't decline but was on the ascent? Ephraim and Menashe. What do I mean? Says the Drash Mordechai. Says Rav Druk's father, of Mordechai Druk. Yaakov just said, Ephraim and Menashe, Kerubin v'shimon yuli. They are not the next generation. They're not grandchildren. They have the status of Shvatim. They're like Reuven and Shimon. Even though they were grandsons, they were given the status of sons. They didn't decline. They didn't go down. They were B'nai Aliyah. They went up. So says Mordechai Druk, you know the bracha we give. I can't wait to think about this this Friday night. The bracha we give to be like Ephraim and Menashe. That bracha is, may you be greater than I am. Everyone else is on their way there. This is a bracha to be even greater. A bracha to be even greater. And Babir is a The Targum Yonason says in this Pasuk, When should this bracha be given? Targum Yonason says, Yaakov is telling him, You know what? Ephraim and Menasha, the greatness of Ephraim and Menasha, you will use them as the model to bless others. When, which day? He doesn't say Friday night. Very unclear when that custom of giving a bracha to our children on Friday night began. But when, when does the Targum Yonasan say you should bless to be like Ephraim and Menashe? On the day of a bris. That's when the bracha, the bracha to be like Ephraim and Menashe is on the day of a bris. So says Rav Druk, you know why the Targum Yonasan is saying specifically on the day of a bris, you should give the bracha to be like, like Menashe and Ephraim? Because that's the first mitzvah they're encountering. So what we're telling that child, that little rachanimol, that little baby boy is, the same way that you have come into this mitzvah, your first mitzvah, so too in every mitzvah may you surpass those who come before. So I'll just add on that my uncle, Zechron Lavracha, Rabbi Ila Zar, my uncle once said at a bris, maybe that's the pshat in what we say, Ze'akotan gadol yihye. May this child go great. What do we mean? Right now, he's six inches long. May he be six feet tall. Right now, he weighs a few ounces. May he weigh 170 pounds. What do you mean, Zakatan, this little pitzkala, gadoyia, may he be large? Is that what we mean? Said my uncle, no. Zakatan, 
Godol mimeni yihye. May this one who right now is less than me, Godol, may he be greater. You know, you have some parents who say, I come to Shul Shabbos morning at 10 a.m. I don't want my children to come earlier than 10. I keep this level of kashras. I don't want them to keep any more scrupulous level of kashras. I only earn this money. I only achieve this education. I only this. I want them to succeed, but exactly where I am. I want them to be where I am religiously. I want them to be where I am politically. I want them to be where I am in my education. That's not a Jewish view. Rather, our attitude is, Zakatan gadol mimeni yiyeh. May this katan, who's right now less than me, gadol may he grow greater than me. Ephraim and Menashe are the first model of that. Kiruvan v'shimon yili. What a beautiful insight of the Drash Mordechai. That's why we invoke them. That's why we choose them. That's why they are our model. B'chai Yevoyich Yisrael. I can't believe that we have to end with this. I bet, just so you know, I got halfway through what I wanted to share. Literally halfway through. But Baruch Hashem, there's a Parshas Vayichi next year. But I'll close with a Divrei Yisrael. Rabbi Chazkel of Kushmir, my friend Rabbi Merzov, shared with me. The Divrei Yisrael of Kushmir says, B'chai Yevoyich Yisrael, Lo Amar B'chem. When he turns to Menashe and Ephraim, he doesn't say, Bochem. It's really plural. There's two people. Shouldn't he say, Bochem, Yevarch Yisrael? Why is it, Becha? Becha ki ishechad, Ba'achtas. Ve'az ein hevdal mikodem lemi. Only if you're united. You will be the model. And you will be the one through whom blessing comes if you are united. If you are as one. Because when you're united, you're not competitive. When you are unified, you don't care about who comes first. Because Ephraim wasn't jealous of Menashe. They were united and they were unified. And therefore, the bracha is not Bachem Yivarach Yisrael, says the Devar Yisrael. It's Becha. You as one entity, as one unit, you as one united. If we really want bracha in our lives, if we want bracha for our children, then we cannot be cutting corners. We cannot be using protexia cannot certainly be doing, unfortunately, like a yuch Hashem and trying to go out of order and out of line, but a person has to rather be united. A person has to act menshlach. If you want bracha, first you need achtos, not bachem, but becha yivarech, and that's how we are able to achieve bracha in our lives. There was and is a lot more to talk about if you're watching on YouTube, but please subscribe to our channel. Even if you're not, feel free to go to Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg on YouTube and subscribe. Otherwise, stay happy, stay healthy, and stay holy. Have a wonderful and holy day. We continue tomorrow morning, 8.15, 10 minutes of Mesilas Sharm, 8.45, Living with Amuna. Tomorrow night we go behind the Bima. Have a phenomenal day.